if you don't think that purchasing or procurement applies to you, you are probably not correct. <laughs> purchasing and procurement really does apply to everybody receiving federal funds or not even receiving federal funds. The main concept with procurement and purchasing is that Uncle Sam doesn't want you to waste their money. So if you're going to a conference for uh, your program and you want to fly first class from San Francisco to New York, I really don't think Uncle Sam would be on board with that. But they would understand flying coach, right? You need to get there. They're not going to expect you to drive a car or take a train or something that might be less cost effective with your time and everything else involved. So procurement really does involve the beginning steps of what am I trying to buy here and what's the end result of what am I actually going to be charging through. Um, and so there's a lot going on with procurement. There's a lot of rules. There's a lot of nuance. But if you can take a step back and look at the forest as a whole and just say, I need to be cognizant of not wasting or abusing my dollars. Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole, or what we call spend culture. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Veronica Cook from Peterson Sullivan. And she is the Audit Senior Manager, and she'll be talking to you guys about the Uniform Guidance Policy today. Thank you, Veronica, for joining us. Thanks for having me. I know you have written a lot of great articles on the Peterson Sullivan blog on the Uniform Guidance Policy. So I'm really curious on just getting to know you a little bit better. Maybe uh, tell us a little bit more about your career history and your role there. Yeah, so I've been with Peterson Sullivan for about 10 years now. Um, I joined right out of college and uh, started in our audit department. So I worked on for-profit jobs, public company jobs, and a lot of nonprofit um, engagements. So what we typically do uh, is perform audit services for our clients. So we'll go in and audit their financial statements. I'll use the term audit, but it really can encompass a wide variety of services, be a review of their financial statements, um, help with their tax return. Uh, nonprofits still have taxes, believe it or not. So got a, a intro to all of that and realized really quickly that I really enjoyed nonprofits. There's something about being a part of the community, um, especially in Seattle. We have a lot of great nonprofit organizations, both big and small. So really being a part of that community, being able to help um, those organizations be more efficient in the services that they're providing. So there's a technical component to what I do um, of actually going out there and, and doing these audits. Um, but the part that I really enjoy the most is um, being a technical expert expert in the office, um, doing a lot of research and, and helping my clients understand what the emerging issues are, how they can be better, how to implement things like the uniform guidance. Um, so there's the, the audit piece that I do, but really the piece I love the most is talking to my clients throughout the year, helping them with issues and things like that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And um, I think this is a pretty rudimentary question, but it's definitely something a lot of our listeners who are not familiar with uniform guidance will ask. What types of organizations are usually affected under this policy and who are usually the responsible parties and departments within organizations to ensure the compliance? 
So the uniform guidance is really applicable to anybody that is receiving federal funds. So that could be a nonprofit organization. It could also be a for-profit organization. I think typically there's a thought out there that you only have to have an audit if you spend over $750,000 of federal funds, which is true, but that you may not necessarily have to follow all of the nuances because no one's necessarily going to be double checking it like we would in an audit. And that's not true. So even if you get $10,000 of federal funds, this, the uniform guidance would still be applicable to you. I think one of the the questions that comes up and, and you asked is who's responsible and especially responsible for ensuring compliance. So one example that I like to give is say that you have $10,000, um, you've gotten that grant and you're responsible for providing meals to 100 seniors. So the thought with that grant is that you also have to provide the meals before you can get that $10,000. So uh, a lot of federal grants are cost reimbursement, which is that example. So if you ask your finance department, they'll tell you, oh, it's program, the program department. They're really responsible because they will tell us when, you know, we serve those hundred meals, which makes sense, right? Right. If you ask those program people, they'll say, well, it's finance because finance is in charge of getting the money. So they'll tell you when we've asked for that $10,000. If you ask your board, the board would say, well, it's the executive director. They signed the grant. (laughs) They're responsible for program and finance. So I think you get the idea. A lot of people think that there's somebody else that's the responsible party. In my world and talking with my clients, really, it's a team effort. Everybody has some sort of responsibility with the grant process from originating the grant to then making sure that, that you followed all of the different compliance pieces. The best thing that I can recommend is really having a designated person to oversee that grant process. So um, at larger organizations, you might have a compliance manager. So they're responsible for overseeing a lot of different federal grants that you have. And it doesn't have to just be federal. It can be other state or local or even other nonprofit grants that you're receiving. But having that designated person. I think that's an ideal world for a lot of larger nonprofits that they can afford somebody to oversee those. If For nonprofits that don't have that budget and can't afford someone, I would really encourage them to sit down to see if they have the capacity to have somebody oversee those grants, really sit down and figure out who is it. Maybe you have to divide up that responsibility between a number of different people, because if you aren't going to be able to provide that, um, it might not be a grant that you really want to undertake. Um, There are a lot of administrative requirements to these grants. And I know with nonprofits, every dollar is an extra dollar to go to your program. But some of these with those administrative requirements, not sure that they're necessarily worth it if it's really going to cost you a lot more time and money um, than getting some grants from, you know, donors within the public that maybe not won't have those same restrictions. It's really interesting that you mentioned the different departments would say it's the other's responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) We've definitely seen this in a lot of organizations, not just nonprofits. So that's something really interesting you mentioned. So I guess my next question, this is kind of also a rudimentary question just to get us started. Uh, What are some of the major components of the uniform guidance policy? So the Uniform Guidance, uh, it it came about a few years ago. It was previously called, the term I think that everyone used was A133. Really, that was just one small component, which was the audit requirements. So the, the OMB is the Office of Management and Budget. And so they come out with all of these rules. So they came out with the uniform guidance and it goes through a lot of different requirements from the initial application of the grant 
all the way through to close out of your grant. And the big piece in the middle is your grant compliance. So what does it mean when you get a grant and, uh, for instance, you have to serve those 100 seniors? Is there an eligibility component to that? For instance, they have to be over 65. Or if you're dealing with something like low-income housing, uh, do they have to have a certain dollar income to meet that low income? requirement. And then it goes through the audit component. So what does it mean to have an audit under the uniform guidance? And then it gives the auditors, the people like me, the guidance as to how we're supposed to perform our audit. The keyword is uniform in all of that. So the government wanted to come up with a set of uniform requirements that grantees, grantors, and auditors would all be able to read and understand and hold each other accountable to. I like how you described it in a very consumable manner instead of reading the entire policy online. So that's really awesome for the listeners and for myself as well. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, I have to say I've printed off the uniform guidance and it's probably maybe 100 pages or so wow. front and back. So you can read it in its entirety. And I tell my clients, please do that. But there's a lot of what I like to say federalese in there. Mm-hmm. It's not in words that you or I would use on the street if we were meeting and, and getting a cup of coffee together. Exactly. <laughs> So I guess we can maybe zoom in on one part of the uniform guidance. I know a lot of our um, readers and our listeners, uh, they are people in finance or accounting, also in procurement. So I'm curious, what do organizations need to know about the procurement and purchasing procedures under the uniform guidance? I would say really the first thing is that if you don't think that purchasing or procurement applies to you, you are probably not correct. (laughs) Purchasing and procurement really does apply to everybody receiving federal funds or not even receiving federal funds. The main concept with procurement and purchasing is that Uncle Sam doesn't want you to waste their money. So if you're going to a conference for uh, your program and you want to fly first class from San Francisco to New York, I really don't think Uncle Sam would be on board with that. But they would understand flying coach, right? You need to get there. They're not going to expect you to drive a car or take a train or something that might be less cost effective with your time and everything else involved. So procurement really does involve the beginning steps of what am I trying to buy here and what's the end result of what am I actually going to be charging through. Um, And so there's a lot going on with procurement. There's a lot of rules. There's a lot of nuance. But if you can take a step back and look at the forest as a whole and just say, I need to be cognizant of not wasting or abusing my dollars, that's really what it's trying to get at. Um, which in that case, if you can look at it that way, that really does apply to everybody, right? I don't think any donor uh, wants you to waste or abuse their dollars. Um, everybody wants it to be going to program as much as possible and to be used as effectively as possible. It's really interesting that you mentioned this just because the whole entire premise of the podcast, it's called Spend Culture, which we say is kind of like a unique set of values and beliefs on how our organization spends its resources. So I think this is exactly what you're mentioning too under the uniform guidance when it comes to procurement. It's just making sure that you're actually spending the resources wisely and making sure that you're making the most out of it, but also um, respecting the fact that it's federal funding. Yeah, definitely. I don't think they'd say, oh, no, don't do that. We're going to get in here and tell you that that's not applicable or, you know, that's not going to benefit the mission or the people you're serving. That's really not their job and what the mission of all of this is. It's really to say, we want you to spend those dollars wisely so you have more dollars to be spending on other things. Absolutely. And I'm curious, what are the purchasing thresholds under the uniform guidance? 
it's really interesting. Um, and I'm laughing because the thresholds are not static. They increase. So when the uniform guidance came out, um, I believe that they started at $2,500 and they're set to increase for inflation. So between the $2,500 and then up to this last summer, they increased to $3,500. And that was one of the thresholds that had increased. And then in the middle of summer, uh, they increased that threshold to $10,000. So you sort of always have to have this eye that these will change really for inflation, but they could change at the whim of the government. So for those people that are visual learners like me, if you Google procurement bear cloth, uh, you'll see a very uh, interesting visual example. It is a real bear cloth. And um, it was made by someone who works at the OMB. And his name was Gil Tran. There's even probably some YouTube videos of him explaining this. And um, I have to say for someone who works for the federal government, he does a really great job of explaining it. So what it is, is there's two main thresholds. You have your micro purchase threshold. That's that $10,000 that I just referenced. And then you have your, your next threshold, which is 250000 And then that's called the simplified acquisition threshold. So what that really means is that for purchases that are in excess of that threshold, you have to do something specific. So for everyone who is purchasing things less than $10,000, you're in the clear. You just sort of have to go back to that example of flying to New York City. Don't be wasteful with the funds, but you don't have to do anything really to prove or show that you followed um, the procurement rules. So if you're between that $10,000 and $250,000 threshold, you have to obtain um, an adequate number of rate quotes or price quotes um, and then list out or describe which one you chose and why you chose it. So there's a lot of nuance in that. There wasn't a specific guidance. So a reasonable number can be anything. That is what you as an organization decide. So I have some that do two, some that do three. Some may even say, you know what? 10 is our magic number. Whatever you put in your policy, that's what you have to follow. So first you have to, to set what that, that number is, and then you have to decide what that looks like. So what is obtaining a price quote or a rate quote? That could be as simple as a Google search. Um, it might be a phone call with other vendors that you know operate in this area. Um, it might actually be even more specific of going on, onto their website, filling out a questionnaire about what those services are um, that they'd be providing. If you think about 10000 to 250000 is kind of a big window of spending. Yeah. Um, I don't know many people that are like, oh, I only live in the land of $10,000 or I only live in the land of 250. So you sort of have to educate everybody um, in your organization about that window and that anything that falls into that has to be procured under those policies. The one very frustrating thing, and I think this is frustrating if you ask anybody, including an auditor, is that purchase is not defined in the uniform guidance. So they don't say, oh, you know, a purchase is an invoice or a purchase is the collective amount of money that you spend with that one organization, maybe Costco or Home Depot or Office Depot, one of those. So it's up to the organization to de define what purchase is which if you then take that a step further, that can get really complicated really fast. So again, it's going to be any purchases as you've defined it um, that are either below um, that $10,000 mark between $10,000 and $250,000 or over the two hundred fifty. dollars Wow. The guidance are quite broad, hey? Like the 
uniform guidance policy. I'm curious uh, because it is quite broad and also it's not specifically defined. If uh, some nonprofits maybe go around the system, and I don't want to assume anything, but if they maybe falsify. This is usually why organizations are having audits then, right? Um, so we get into the nitty gritty and actually test transactions to see if they have or haven't complied with their procurement policy. So it's really easy for us as the auditor to come in and say, hey, how much did you spend on these federal programs during the year? And then we'll read through their procurement policy to see how they're supposed to be treating those purchases. And we'll start asking those questions. And if they haven't been following their policy or if they start to get a little squeamish, maybe when we're asking questions, that's usually a good (laughs) sign that we're onto something and we need to talk about it more. I will say for the most part, Most of my clients that are receiving these federal dollars really understand the broad idea that as long as you're doing your best and you're trying to be responsible with your funds, there's usually a little bit of grace in there. I don't know if you went and asked the federal government if they would say that there's grace, but we try to give a little (laughs) grace um, and say, you know what? You really tried. You did document the thought process and how you came to, to, to your decision. And we're looking at the dollars and you didn't buy that first class plane ticket. So yeah, well, another airline might have been $10 cheaper. You know, it was really inconvenient for your staff. So we understand. Um, and procurement isn't about, I think this is a huge misnomer. It's not necessarily about the cheapest option. There are some exceptions under the rules and it can be because you have a prior relationship with that entity that's providing those services. So you're not going to have startup costs or difficulties in engaging someone new or, you know, you, this one organization, they're really skilled in what they do. So it's to your benefit to work with them versus someone who's a brand new organization in that space. Maybe they're not as familiar with the rules. So there can be reasons why you don't pick the cheapest option. And as long as you're not, quote unquote, wasting those funds by going with somebody else, there's that's usually okay. You mentioned the auditing part of the uniform guidance. So as an auditor, what do you usually look for when it comes to the red flags? I know you kind of mentioned like, oh, being squeamish. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) squeamish or not answering questions is almost always a red flag. (laughs) Um, It doesn't necessarily mean that someone did something wrong. It just means that they are not sure (laughs) if they have or they have questions and you really need to sit down and kind of hold their hand and walk them through it. What I really look for and really the first part of an audit is do you have policies and procedures over procurement? You don't even have those. We're in like a whole red flag situation because... The guidance is so vague that it's really telling you what you shouldn't be doing and giving you a little bit of guidance of what you should do. And then going out and saying, hey, go make a policy and procedure. Make sure it fits these criteria. If it does, then just follow it. And as long as you follow it, you're going to be okay. So if you don't have a roadmap to follow, how are you going to prove that you did the right thing um, or that you did obtain those price quotes or rate quotes or, you know, you went for a construction project and had a sealed bid procedure? You know, how are you going to prove that if you don't even have the roadmap? Um, so that is my immediate first red flag. Um, fortunately, I think there's been a lot of conversation around procurement. Um, this has been around for a number of years now. So people have been talking about it and know about it. Um, so hopefully they've contacted someone to work through creating that policy and procedure in the first place. The second red flag for me is, do people know about it? Um, you know, if I'm having conversations with my clients, and I think one of my clients in particular 
the people who are procuring the services or the goods are usually not the people in finance. Finance typically is going to be paying for it. Maybe they're working with the vendor if questions come up, but really good, it's going to be the program staff, right? Or maybe the executive director. So has everybody been made aware of what the procurement policy is? Do they have tools at their disposal to go out and procure those services and then document it and all of that? So if I'm talking to people and they're like, procurement, what? I have no idea what you're saying. Then that's also a red flag to me that someone made a great policy procedure, put it on a shelf, and it's just collecting dust. So those are kind of the two red flags for me when I'm starting out the audit process. And then the final one is actually testing it and saying, hey, you know, these are the transactions we want to look at. It looks like you spent this much with this vendor. You know, can you show me your procurement packet or whatever it is for that organization, whatever their terminology is? And they go, uh, so about that, I don't know. I may have to go find it and get it together. And, you know, a few days later, I'm getting something and it, it's, all time stamped and date stamped as of yesterday. That's a red flag to me too, (laughs) right? You you might've put it together, but we really look for that um, timely completion of documentation, right? We want to see that you thought about it before you actually purchase the services. Because what happens if you do it afterwards and you find out, oh, actually there was a way better deal with a way better organization than we went with someone else because we didn't procure those services. So we look for that that timely component of it and that audit trail. Um, that's really the piece that is important to us is that audit trail, the audit documentation to prove. I mean, I love all my clients. I'm super supportive of them. But I have this thing that in my role is called professional skepticism that I have to keep in the back of my mind, which <laughs> I think is why people think auditors are so scary because <laughs> we always question. Uh, yeah. We always uh, have judgments about things um, because we have to have that skepticism piece. I would say it's more of a curiosity too. I just like to put it that way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We're really curious. We want to hear what you did. We want to walk through it. We want to think through it with you. That's all context, Mm -hmm. right? And context is so important in this world. Um, You can't always put everything out on a pen and paper or type it all up. And sometimes just having a conversation can reveal so much. Absolutely. And I'm curious, you mentioned documentation. What kind of documentation do you normally look for in audit trail? The first piece is, uh, and weirdly enough, is that policy and procedure. So within the uniform get-ins, they have two words that they use a lot. One is must and one is should. And must means you absolutely have to do it. There's no doubt about it. Um, It's an absolute requirement. Should means you must do it unless you have a really good reason not to do it. And our recommendation is always document that, right? If someone, if it says you should do this and you say, well, I don't think I should put that in writing and kind of give your justification for that. So one of the things that it says in uniform guidance is that you must have written policies and procedures over procurement. So that's a piece of documentation to me. I look for that and I want to see that and I want to talk about it. Then when I actually get into the testing of things, there's a lot of still pen and paper type documentation. So it might be a purchase order, um, a request form, an expense reimbursement form, maybe a checklist. Um, but I want to see that that within whatever that is, you've hit all of the key components, right? So if it's that $10,000 for those meals to your seniors and you went and you contracted that with somebody that you went through and you looked at who are some of the other organizations that might be able to do that for you? Do they meet the requirements of, of what you're looking for? And kind of walking through what your procurement policy is. I mean, having all of that together as one, I, I use the term packet a lot, putting it all in one place. So if there's ever any questions from me or any other entities that come in, 
um, because we're not the only ones that audit our clients. Um, A lot of them will receive oversight audits by their federal grantors or, you know, maybe even it's the the city or the county that's coming in and looking at them. And if anyone ever questioned it, you go, here's my packet. Here's everything that I have. Here's my justification for why I went with this company or this organization. Here's the other three or four that we considered. You can see why we went with them because they were the lowest price or we've had a previous relationship with them so we don't have startup costs or whatever it might be that that's all in one location for anyone to look at. And then the other piece of all of that is, did someone actually review that? Is someone Does someone have the ability to make all the decisions at your organization with no oversight? That's not really a good set of internal controls, right? You want to have someone who can review that information to either, in our world, um, we use prevent or detect something from happening. So is someone procuring a service with their cousin because their cousin needs a job? Um, is that really like the best thing to do? And so by having someone review that, they'd say, whoa, hold on a second. You know, we agree your cousin needs the work, but are they really the best qualified? So having someone sign off and actually put pen to paper, um, or if it's electronic, you know, there's a lot of different electronic documentation to have that saying, yep, I looked at this packet, everything's here, I agree with that decision. And that kind of goes back to the question you asked earlier about who's responsible. There should be someone that is responsible for overseeing the purchase of those services or goods to make sure that the person who put all the documentation together did it, and then everything's there. Because what if something's missing? You don't want to wait until you get to the audit, right? Definitely not that you don't have all your ducks in a row. You wanted to kind of be checking that periodically. And there's no better time than as you're going through the process to be able to make sure that everything is there. Totally. And I'm curious also, how often do you guys conduct the audits? So our audits are usually conducted annually. We would conduct this type of an audit. um, We call them a single audit at the same time that we'd be doing an organization's financial statement audit. So if you are a December 31st year end, you're probably going to have your audit, you know, maybe springtime typically be wrapped up by summer. Um, If you're a nonprofit with a June 30 year end, you're typically going to fall into the the fall timeframe. So it's typically once a year and would be done in conjunction with uh, work on their financial statements. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And this is kind of a fun question here. What do schools and some other nonprofits do poorly when it comes to establishing internal controls and purchasing policies? Are there any horror stories you can kind of share with us? Yeah. So I think that there's two pieces. One is they'll go through this exercise and put together a fantastic policy and procedure. They'll send it over. They'll get my comments. You know, they'll get some other comments. Maybe the board will even look at it. And they design this amazing policy and procedure and they'll even print it out, put it in a fancy binder and stick it on a shelf. And then nobody looks at it ever again. Uh (laughs) And it's like, hold on, you guys put all of this time and effort into something that's really important. And then you just let it sit on a shelf and collect dust. And so that's something that I think it's really unfortunate because organizations are made up of people. So when people spend all this time taking something really seriously and putting in the time and effort, you don't want to let it die. You want to spend the time to think through, does this work the way that we've designed it? If it doesn't work, let's tweak it. Let's make it better. And let's be more efficient. Um, Because you want everybody to love their job. 
at the end of the day, right? So if you're telling someone to go out and do all this stuff just to document procurement and it's really annoying and it's not working for them, can you make that process better for that person? Um, so you can still meet the requirements, right? But they'll love their job a little bit more and not be so frustrated. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that's definitely one thing that, that comes up a lot is if you do take the time to think through your policies and procedures, honor that process um, and continue to update them, review them, um, tweak them if necessary to really make it work for you. And then I definitely have a horror story with procurement. So earlier we talked about defining what a purchase is. So I think uh, originally when all this came out, I had some clients that were really gung-ho about making purchases with vendors in total. So saying, yep, every time we go to Costco, we'll add all those up. And at the end of the year, if they're over that $10,000 mark, then we'll we'll have procured those services. Now, this was back when the threshold was a lot lower. And so in the, the $3,000 range, if you think about it, a lot of organizations are spending more than $3,000 with a lot of different people. So that procurement process wasn't really happening because that's not how you think about it. You really think about it of what am I buying today? Do I need to procure this one contract or this invoice or at Costco and I'm looking at office furniture and this is going to be my best bang for my buck versus going to Staples or office snacks? So you're really thinking about it in those terms, not this collective purchase. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) despite all of our recommendations, some of our clients and some organizations I know put that into their policies and procedures. And I will say after the first audit cycle, almost everybody revised that policy and they said, nope. We are now using individual purchases. Every time I go and I buy one thing, that is going to be my procured transaction threshold. I'm not going to do this collective end of year kind of look back thing. It just got really messy. So uh, trial and error for sure has helped the process along for a lot of, of organizations dealing with this. Absolutely. That seems really familiar to a lot of CFOs that we talk to in some companies. You mentioned we write down one thing, but sometimes when it comes to the compliance internally in the organization, it's actually quite hard for some of the employees to wrap their heads around. No, totally. And that's the thing where if everybody is willing to talk about it and say, hey, you know what? You tell me that this is what I'm supposed to do in my job description or in in my documentation, my, my set of policies and procedures, but it's not working. Or we used to do that that way five years ago. Can't we change it? Just being open mm-hmm. to that and saying, yeah, there might be a better way to do something. I mean, technology is improving every day. So maybe technology can be a tool that you're using that you couldn't use before. Or maybe someone from the top has changed the way that things are done. So now when it comes to actually implementing that, you've changed how you've implemented it. So really taking the time to review those and change them. I don't think there's anything wrong with changing your policies and procedures. And I think people are a little scared to do it. I don't know why, but I think that they are. Absolutely. Change is always hard, I think, in organizations, especially when you're getting used to one way of doing things. And then someone comes in and says, hey, let's try something new. And everybody's kind of scrambling. Oh, what do we do now? (laughs) Yeah. And then they get scared. They're like, oh, I don't want to change it because it's working really well. And it's like, no, don't be afraid of that change. Change can be a really good thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I guess this relates kind of to your point there. When it comes to internal controls, uh, what do you think is the most difficult usually for people to kind of get on board? Is it the people or is it the processes or systems that causes the most friction? It's definitely the people. We talked a little bit about creating the policy and just sticking it on a shelf. But then also people want to understand why they're doing something. If you just tell someone to go out and do it and they don't know why they're doing it, a lot of people are going to have a really hard time. I've heard a lot of different talks and meetings and conferences about talking about the generation that's entering the workforce now. 
and the one that just entered it before them. And people want to know why they're doing what they're doing. They want to have a purpose. They want to understand it. And so just telling them this is your job and this is your task, go forth and do it. They're going to have a really hard time with it. And there's not that sense of ownership. So really taking the time to educate your staff, why, you know, what is the uniform guidance? Why is it important? Having that basic conversation of it's important because if we don't follow the rules, we could lose our federal funding. For a lot of organizations, that would totally put them out of business. And if we think about why people are in the nonprofit space or working at schools, it's because their heart's in it and they want to be there and they want to be serving the community that they're living in. They believe in the mission. They believe in the cause. So they want to understand why they're doing what they're doing and they don't want their organizations to lose their funding or have a bad reputation for not being in compliance with something. So taking the time to explain to them, you know, this is really important and this is why it's important and asking along the way, do you have ideas to make things better um, or make things more efficient? Just letting them own that process. We're not just these cogs in a machine that nobody cares about. We're people at the end of the day, right? Totally. And that's what we believe in too um, at Procurify as a company. We believe that people should be given the opportunity to kind of have a say in the processes of an organization, not just because you have a title or whatever. Like every single person that comes in is part of the culture, is part of the process in itself. So I really love what you mentioned there from an auditor's perspective too. Yeah, I think the nonprofit space, your culture is so important and how you treat one another. So, you know, how you're treating someone at the the water uh, cooler and, you know, if you're going out to lunch and how you treat them at lunch, why do we do that just in those situations? We should be doing that in all the work that someone's doing, um, even some of these task-based things. Give them that that ownership and that power because it's really empowering and it creates a good culture that people want to be a part of. Totally. And speaking of just making it easier for the employees, what are some of the best software and tools that you would recommend an organization to implement to make sure that this whole uh, procurement process is much easier? This is really interesting because I don't know that there's really a lot of tools and software that are out there in this space. I think it's really a space that's open for a lot of companies to look at. And I think there's always been a focus on the for-profit side, but not as much on the nonprofit side. So a lot of my clients are still using pen and paper. They're still using you know, a manual checklist or request form or something of that nature. I have some clients who have been using um, a company called Visual Compliance to help them with some of the pieces of procurement, but I'm not seeing anything that's really consistent or that's really working from A to Z in the process that's working for organizations of all sizes, right? Because you have those nonprofits that are in the hundred, maybe $200,000 of revenues all the way up to the millions of dollars. So kind of some an organization to meet all of those different needs. Absolutely. Yeah, we're, we usually ask this question just because we've noticed that in a lot of nonprofits, they tend to be a little bit more manual. So we're just curious on what you think the landscape of the technology kind of looks like for them when it not just when it comes to procurement, but also like accounting software or any other types of software. What is it that these organizations tend to kind of use? This space and in compliance, there's definitely an opening. So, you know, maybe someone will listen to this and get inspired and come up with something that could help all of the, the nonprofits and schools and organizations out there. In terms of other software pieces, I mean, there's definitely QuickBooks as an accounting software that is entry level. And I see that used all the time. There's others. MIP, um, Concur is a great software that's used for expense reporting. There definitely are other 
pieces or technologies that are used. Um, it really depends on what they're looking for, if it's a donor relations software, CRM, or if it's for accounting purposes. I know there's a lot out there, but the field does get narrowed when it goes into being tailored for nonprofits because nonprofits are completely different than their for-profit counterparts. And they have to think about things in a completely different way. So the, the field definitely does narrow. I'm curious, what are some of these differences, if you can share with us? Yeah. So one of the things that I hear a lot is just in terms of net income. So the words are different. So a, a nonprofit will have net assets, whereas a for-profit will have net income. They're very similar, but they're just different words. There's also differences in how you account for your transaction. So as a nonprofit, if someone is having a conversation with you and they're like, I'm so excited about your mission and I believe in what you do, I want to give you $10,000. That's actually an accounting transaction, um, or it can be an accounting transaction. So right there, you have $10,000 of revenue, whereas in a for-profit world, you need to have more of a contract or an invoice or something to solidify that transaction. Um, and, and that amount, you know, is it $10,000 for this year? Is it recognized over the next five years? Those are some differences. We have the idea of pledges in the nonprofit world. We also have the idea of restrictions on those gifts. So I want to give you $10,000 to support that senior food program. That's a restricted contribution. Whereas in the for-profit world, you don't have those. You're buying something and there's an exchange transaction happening where I'm going to give you $10,000 and you are going to give me a product or a service in return as a tangible benefit. So those are some differences and how those then impact your net assets or your net income. They have different ramifications. So kind of understanding and looking at that set data can be different. And so how do you account for that then when you go into an accounting system? Absolutely. Even though there's just a little bit of a kind of like a vocabulary change, I think it really means a lot when you're coming from like a CFO's perspective or the compliance manager's perspective. When, it, when you're using these tools, you want to make sure that it's uniform across all of the organizations. Definitely. And I know a lot of my CFOs or CEOs or whatever the title may be, executive director or finance director, they're spending a lot of time with individuals who aren't as familiar with these terms and concepts explaining them. So, you know, you're sitting down with a CEO of a large for-profit company and you're having to say, this is why our financial statements will look different than your financial statements because we have to account for things in this way. So really having the tools to make that process easier or more transparent it depends on what the needs of the board and the organization are. But yeah, there's a lot of, I would say there's a lot of time in translation spent at nonprofits or there can be for sure. So this is kind of like a dumb question. Excuse me if this is kind of really weird. There's no such thing as a dumb question in my world. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. I'm really curious. Is there something in the for-profit world that it's similar to the uniform guidance policy for procurement? So there for-profits can obtain federal dollars under and be subject to the uniform guidance. So a lot of organizations, if you think about the research and development community, there's a lot of for-profits out there that are wanting to find cures or find drugs for certain diseases. And so they can actually receive a lot of federal dollars. So they would be subject to these same rules and have to have an audit under these same rules. We tend to call those program-specific audits. But yeah, for-profits, and it typically is 
is uh, it is going to be those organizations that are receiving what we call research and development dollars. There can also be organizations if you're a government entity. So think your your institutes of higher education, your colleges. They're not necessarily nonprofit, but they're also not necessarily a for-profit entity, and they would would also be subject to these. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about the types of clients or the names of the clients that Peterson Sullivan works with so the um, the audience can also contact you if they feel like they need some of the services provided. Yeah. So uh, at my firm, we work with a lot of different entities or organizations. So the ones we primarily don't do are banking um, or hospitals, healthcare. Um, We are in the healthcare space, but not with hospitals. Outside of that, we work with auto dealers and biotech firms, nonprofits. If you're in the health and human services or maybe a museum, a private school, um, if you're receiving those federal dollars or not receiving them. And also, if you're not sure um, if you need to have audits, um, we deal with that all the time, sort of being this question and answer. Um, we do provide a lot of services, whether it's an audit um, or maybe something less in scope, like a review or a compilation. Um, and then for most of my clients, we actually also do their tax work. Um, so filing their Form 990, they have a benefit plan, we'll audit that or file those tax forms. So we're sort of in a lot of different spaces. We call them niches within our firm. So if someone is curious about it, I would just recommend they check out our website. It's www.pscpa, so Peterson Sullivan, the PS, and then cpa.com. I mean, that really has all of our industries, articles that we've posted and things like that. Well, thank you so much, Veronica, for providing a non-intimidating view into the world of uniform <laughs> guidance in a way that's like engaging and informative. I've personally learned a lot, and I'm sure our audience will also take a lot from this conversation. Good. That's the goal. That is my life goal is to make these things a lot easier to understand. I know they can be really complicated and really scary. My kind of goal in life is to be the phone a friend to say, hey, I think that I need some help with this. Um, will you help me read this and understand it? There's so much nuance. And like I said, it can seem so scary and it doesn't have to be. Um, everybody should have a friend that they can use to work through it together. So I'm happy to be that for, for you guys and for the your customers and the people listening um, and for my clients. That's an exciting thing to be able to do. So I'm glad that you guys uh, learned something and had a good time. I had a good time talking with you. Well, thank you so much, Veronica. And I hope you have a wonderful weekend too. Yes, definitely. You guys as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in on another episode of Spend Culture Stories. If you like this series, please support us by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to subscribe so you can get notified of the newest episodes. We try to post every episode every Wednesday. This podcast is sponsored by Procurify, a software solution that is reinventing the way organizations spend. Procurify allows an accessible and convenient way to request for purchases, get approval from your manager, while allowing your finance team to get the visibility and control you need on every purchase. Learn more about Procurify at www.procurify.com.